Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that hopes Emiliano Martinez can take his goalie gloves with him to the prison showers. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And this past weekend, we've had the international break, which has given us a break to look at the Premier League so far, think about how the teams have performed, assess their transfers with the window now closed and squads finalised, and figure out where we think they'll finish in the league this season. As always, timestamps are in the description, and before we get into our league table predictions, a few quick news stories to round up, starting with the bizarre scenes that took place on Sunday night as civil servants stormed the pitch at Brazil versus Argentina in an attempt to detain several players. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of saying there about how, uh, you know, the international break, this very much for me has completely eclipsed whatever had happened on the pitch until then. Obviously, we had a couple of England games, um, but just the the wildest scenes I think that we've seen in recent years um, on an international pitch, just, just absolutely mad that it would come to this. It seems so, again, like unprofessional. It seems so um, unnecessary as well, um, but... Yeah, essentially, um, several of Argentina's players are alleged to have lied when um, coming over to Brazil and playing the game. They also broke, um, you know, the rules of their clubs. Um, a couple were told by their clubs not to um, take part and did instead. Um, so, you know, it's something that's still coming out at the moment, but just a, a weird, weird old one. Yeah, supposedly what had happened was, so the Argentina national team had played in Venezuela before this game, and on entering Brazil from Venezuela, the four Premier League players, um, Emiliano Martinez and Emiliano Buendia of Aston Villa, and Giovanni Lo Celso and Christian Romero of Spurs, um, who, as you said, apparently both weren't allowed to travel out by the Premier League. Uh, the Premier League didn't want them to go to any countries, but Aston Villa hadn't want them to go to... Um, to the Brazil fixture, but on entering Brazil from Venezuela, they'd said on their forms, oh, I haven't been in the UK for the last 14 days, which seems at the best of times like a very short-term strategy because you were playing in front of millions of viewers just the last weekend. Um, A really, really weird thing. And it was one of those that, you know, you said like one of those weird things we see. And there's, you know, South American football, we all love it for, for how mental it can be. But this wasn't just sort of like, you know, two teams from the sort of Venezuelan second division or something. This was Brazil versus Argentina, which is like, if you're talking about the top 10 biggest fixtures in world football, that's got to be up there. Maybe it's top five. Um, it's, in terms you know, of grudge matches, definitely. Just in terms of like scale of these two enormous footballing nations, these historic rivals, and to sort of have the game interrupted mm. by these sort of, there was a guy who was running on with like the documents in his back jeans pocket, which is insane. And it was all sort of juxtaposed by like Lionel Messi and Neymar, two of the biggest stars, not in the, not just in the sport now, but in the history of the sport, sort of just standing by as they sort of were second fiddle to the, the powers that be. Um, and a really, really weird, weird sort of situation. And now the Argentinian national team has sort of had to fly back and they're sort of, apparently the players might be available more often, more, more. Uh, early um, but it's just been a very weird situation a very surreal to see that thing happen it reminded me of when I was sort of going through um, Twitter people sort of were, were also spamming that video about the other really hilarious thing that happened uh, back in 2016 I think it was when you remember Enna Valencia the striker who played for West Ham yeah there was an incident where he was playing uh, for, uh, I believe it's Ecuador, and the um, it, is, it is Ecuador actually because it was in Quito the match, and he feigned injury and escaped in a buggy because police tried to storm the pitch to arrest him for um, child support payments that he hadn't paid out to the mother of his child. And so there's this bizarre video of like what appears to be about fifteen to twenty policemen, some with riot shields, chasing this like relatively slow moving golf buggy, and and I hear that he escaped entirely. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. He's he's a rich man. <clears throat> Good bit of pace on him as well. Um, but yeah, but South very American true. football, as ever, just a, a very weird scenario. Um, yeah, so yeah so I that, guess I guess the um the the main question people had was kind of how necessary was it that you know it happened on the pitch and on the surface it very much seems like you know, a statement of intent that they will come on and disrupt the game. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, apparently um, stuff going on around it was that, you know, the the locker room was, was locked. Um, so the officials couldn't get in before the game started. And they were also waiting to see whether or not the players actually took to the pitch because they'd also been warned not to play. Um, so personally, I very much fall on the side of this seems like a statement piece, but I... Yeah, 
to know. It kind of feels like maybe there's more going on as well. Maybe. I mean, you know, one big part of the um, the whole story is, of course, this is Argentina versus Brazil. Not only are they, you know, famous rivals, but just a few months ago, Argentina sort of humiliated Brazil by winning the Copa America against Brazil in Brazil. So there might be little undertones of that, you know, a grand revenge by Brazil to sort of try and preserve their, their spotless record in World Cup qualifiers um, against a, a very strong Argentina side. So who knows? Maybe there is a story behind the story, but it there almost doesn't even need to be with how bizarre the things were on the surface. Yeah, you're right. Like, it's enough of a story as it is. Um, the other thing that we had in the international break was a, a slightly less humorous, a slightly more unsavoury one, which was uh, England versus Hungary. Uh, Hungarian fans were allowed to attend the game, uh, and there was, many may not be <laughs> surprised to learn, uh, a lot of racial abuse of uh, certain English players, um, and you know, Raheem Sterling accordingly did what he does best, which is score in those situations. Um, but it was just a weird one, because Hungary, as you may remember, have had fans uh, banned from attending by UEFA after a similar racial incident before but because this was a FIFA match the rules did not apply and it just I, I know that FIFA and UEFA are famously bad at collaborating together but when something like the Super League happened all of a sudden they were like hop to we can collaborate whereas when it's like a racial incident they're like well it didn't happen in our specific brand of competition therefore the fans are allowed and it's it was just one of those moments that you're sort of like ah yeah that's the side that the bread is buttered on very much so yeah and, and so disappointing to see even just fans allowed in the stadium hungry fans allowed in the stadium because this is very much not the first time that they've done something like this they've got a really bad reputation for being racist to um, opposing players and yeah just just a sad sight it obviously you know there, there was like a a really nice few moments came out of it so a couple of players you know drinking the cups that were thrown and, um, you know, all gathering around the players um, and things like that. But yeah, just not what you want to see. Not what you want to see at all, but be all right. It did have sort of shades of... Um you know, the England squad, again, curse this England squad for being so likeable. It makes it really difficult for me to bitch about them because they are just a really likeable group of lads. And, you know, it's the same thing. Um, it was Bakayo Saka's birthday uh, yesterday when they played against Andorra and he scored on his birthday. And, like, all of the players were coming out afterwards, like, in like specific support for them, being like, you know, Luke Shaw posted something that was, like, not only a special player, but a really special guy. And it's all being sort of, like, the nice big brothers to this young guy who went through a really hard time. Damn this yeah. England team for being so likable and also also being able to break my heart. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a cruel world out there, isn't it? Um, yeah, honestly, <laughs> everyone seems to love Bukayo Saka. It's just nice to see. He just seems like because he, he's twenty one now, but he seems like he's about twelve years old. Like he looks and sort of acts like he's a really young kid, and all the squad sort of like gets around him to support him, which is which is so nice to see. Or twenty now he is not not twenty one twenty. Yeah, a young, young, young guy. Um, elsewhere in international football, um, Morocco's national team were forced to flee Guinea late on Sunday after a coup began in the West African country. And, you know, not not to be outdone, you know, by by uh, Conmebol, CAF decided that they had to have their own international drama. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Heaven forbid uh, any one, uh, one continent rises above the others in terms of drama. The, the rivalry that we were sort of talking about was Brazil-Argentina, but actually the rivalry is sort of like the off-field dealings that affect the on-field goings between Africa and South America. <laughs> to be fair, I mean, who is the biggest villain in world football? <laughs> Indeed. Or, or not even like, sometimes not even like villainy, it's just like bizarre things that happen, like just completely removed from the sport that leak into sport. Well, hey, you you got to get those those viewing numbers up no matter what. You really do. Uh, last off before we go into the table is looking just briefly because this is a story I'm sure we'll be covering uh, more and more with the coming weeks and maybe it will be something that we won't talk about for a few months but as it develops it'll definitely take over the football landscape and that is the proposal from FIFA headed up by former Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger who is now FIFA's head of global development uh, to change the World Cup from being a four-year format to a two-year format and like I said, I don't want to go too much into it, but just your quick initial thoughts on a two-year World Cup, Rupert. Great, because we get to see more World Cup, or dross? Uh, I don't like it. I, I would agree. I think it kind of just, it, it flies in the face of what makes the World Cup great. Scarcity is what makes it amazing. One chance, most players get to play sort of three or four World Cups if they're lucky, and it's sort of seen as such a, a big chance to make your mark on the stage. You only get so many bites of the apple. Two years would kind of dispel that magic. And also, how would that fit in the schedule with things like the Euros and the, and the Copa America? Um, not a fan here either. Yeah, I, I just, any sort of decision like that that seems like it's only purely entirely motivated by money, I just feel like it's just so dull and boring. And please, can we 
just go back to enjoying football for football's sake. Yeah, if it ain't fixed, if it ain't fixed, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You got there in the end, didn't you? I <laughs> uh, certainly did. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I just, you know, little time, little time for it. But, you know, I'm, as you say, we'll be covering it as it, as it develops um, in the future. But let's not get tied down by it. And let's talk about the Premier League table as we see it in May next year. Which is going to be fun. Um, it was definitely fun to look back at this uh, at the end of last season and see which we got right and which we got wrong. I was particularly happy about getting Leeds' position uh, bang on correct after, you know, waffling on for so long about how much I aligned myself with Marcelo Bielsa's tactics and, and views and everything. Um, so I was glad to at least have that one going. Um, but uh, starting off with first place, Rupert, big question, deserves a big answer. Who do you see winning this edition of the Premier League? I okay, so I mean, this is maybe going to be something that is going to come out, but I am not going to back either Manchester club, and I think Chelsea are going to win it. Interesting. Um, they are also the team that I've gone for in first place, so we agree that Chelsea are looking the likeliest to to win this. Why don't you start going through some of your reasons, and I'll uh, I'll chip in where I agree. I think um, that the main thing that I would say is that it just seems like they have a lot of momentum going for them. You know, their their last. Six months of last season were so, so strong. Obviously, they won the Champions League. They've got, it feels like a lot of stability at the club. Thomas Tuchel, I don't think, has got any like bizarre um, upsets up his sleeve, I don't think. And the squad seems really balanced. They were lacking a striker. They brought one in. He looks amazing. He's exactly what they need. They've brought in Saul as well, who is, for all intents and purposes, you know, a really good backup midfield player. I think... The only thing that I would maybe be worried about is that obviously they sold Kazuma and weren't able to bring in someone like Jules Koundé, but they they do have a bunch of really exciting young centre-backs as well. For example, Trevor Chalabas already looked great. So that would be my one concern about them. But apart from that, they just have the squad depth to blow anyone away. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about Chelsea at the moment is that when you look at successful Chelsea sides over the last 15 years, a lot of the time it's almost like a bit of a Faustian pact with the manager. You get like someone who knows how to run a team, but that comes at the expense of like some sort of massive blow up. I'm thinking of sort of like your Saris or your Contes or obviously the big boss himself, Jose, um, who they're sort of like, well, you win, but there's also, or you, you know, you're going to look good for a period, but there's also the potential to have this massive crumbling down. And Thomas Tuchel, by all accounts, seems like not only a measured guy, but someone who really understands the importance of things like club culture. I was reading something today about how one of the first things he did when he arrived as sort of Chelsea boss was he sort of gathered all the staff together and entered the room and there was a real sort of frosty air and everyone was like, oh God, new boss, which one of us are going to sort of get sacked with the old regime and which one is going to get kept on? And the first thing he did was he sent someone out to bring in a bunch of, in his words, strong German beers and it sort of just dispelled the tension immediately and sort of really started (laughs) off his his sort of time at the club in, in, in the right way, which can often seem like something that's completely superficial but actually has so much importance when everyone at the club sort of is sort of on board with you um and sort of gets behind that so I think there's that um obviously yeah I mean in terms of the team uh, that the manager has assembled they did win the Champions League last season they had some fantastic momentum they were really good at beating good teams as well as you know not dropping silly points and they've got a really good core of younger players that seem to only get better each game. Mason Mount and Reese James have picked up where they left off last season. Obviously, Reese James did just get a red card, so it's not... <laughs> not that, but that wasn't him so much playing badly. It was a, you know, a, yeah, a handball yeah, sure. red card, not a sort of rash tackle or, or him being, you know, particularly cynical or anything. Um, and they keep getting better. Lukaku... You know, obviously their club record signing. He is a top, top quality striker, as we know, and could be the signing to push them over the top. It was the thing that you looked at last season with Chelsea. And obviously Kai Havertz had a good finish to the season, but wasn't great the whole way through. Timo Werner steamed still unable to hit the target. Um, Whereas Lukaku, if he can deliver even sort of 75% of what he delivered at Inter Milan with that squad around him, you'd have to put them as favourites, in my opinion, and and clearly in yours as well. Um, I would say the main issue for Chelsea is maybe complacency. Um, I think squad depth, so you talked about Zuma there, but they do have so many young players that, you know, as we've seen with someone like a Mount or a Reese James or even players that aren't there anymore, like Tammy Abraham, I think Chelsea have such a good, you know, deep bench that just is untapped that actually they can step up and do it. So that's not a huge concern for me. It's more complacency. Um, it's a very small sample size, but sort of we talked about a couple of weeks ago against Arsenal, they are very capable of switching it on and switching it off. And sometimes sort of after they've switched on, they relax a bit. And I don't see that being a problem for them 
in games where they know it's not going to be easy. Like, I don't see them ever switching off, you know, when they play Liverpool at Anfield or City at the Etihad. But I could also very easily see, like, a game this season where they get surprised by, like, a West Ham or a Leeds when they sort of just get caught out and there's an early goal and all of a sudden they're like, oh, God, and the team that can sort of organise themselves at the back manages to nick three points off them. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the two things that um, I thought of as Chelsea's weaknesses last season were, yeah, a lack of um, clinicalness in, in front of goal and... I wouldn't. I didn't think of it as being complacency. I kind of thought of it more as being uh, a lack of ability to kill off games. Um, but I think it amounts to the same thing. We will see whether or not the addition of Lukaku will solve the first problem of not being particularly good in front of goal. But yeah, they will need to grow up a little bit this year and just start dominating games and and being able to put themselves in a comfortable position where they can just you know relax. I think it's it's almost sort of typical of Chelsea of a side that haven't really experienced that much heartbreak in their modern history. Partly because like I think every time Chelsea win the league, it's sort of like a not not a take it for granted, but kind of like a, oh look, there's not sort of like you know how when Liverpool won the league, there was a real sort of blood, sweat, and tears element to it, and they were like we've been denied it so many times at like the final hurdle, and so as a result, they were so serious about it right until the final day. And I kind of get the sense that maybe at Chelsea, sort of they start to win, and they're like, well, hey, we're on the beach, we're going to win, and that's when mistakes start to happen, and often not mistakes enough to lose it for them, but you know, less so than some of these other teams. Could well be, but I think Thomas Tuchel as a manager is you know good enough that he will snuff that out. But time yep. will tell. Um, moving on, who have you got in second place? Second place, I have gone for Manchester City. Um, uh, is that one you agree on or will I reel off mine and then hear your, your second place? No, it's not someone I agree on. Go first. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why I've gone for Man City. I think that Manchester City do have the best squad in the league. If you're just talking about sort of like, you look at their benches when they line up for some of these games and half the time Manchester City's entire bench would walk into pretty much every other squad in the league. Like someone like Riyad Mahrez, who is there a team in the Prem he wouldn't start for? Or Gundogan or, or you know, half these players. It, it's ridiculous. Um, but crucially, no striker. And in the absence of a striker, you know, like a first-team striker, they've decided to bring Gabriel Jesus back into the fold, but convert him to a winger, which is the kind of, like, fifth-dimensional chest hilarious. that like, I can't it's understand hilarious. because it's thought up by Pep's bald head. Um, I think it will be a tight race. I can see sort of Chelsea winning and being on, like, 98 points and City being on, like, 96 or something. But I just think, yeah, a, a well-drilled side. You know, I talked about Chelsea's complacency being an issue, potentially, but also one that I do think Tuchel will be able to snuff out. I see a well-drilled side like a Chelsea being able to pit them to the title through the big game wins because I do think Man City, as we've already seen with Spurs, do have the ability to sort of just fluff their lines a little bit. We saw it last season um, in their games against Chelsea or Manchester United. We started to see that not only did they sometimes get, you know, a little bit fluffed, but the teams with the right resources have figured out how to limit the City effectiveness, partly just because they don't play a striker. Well, yeah, exactly. I I think... um... I mean, I, I, I'll talk about Man City. I've put them third. Um, and the reason I put Man City third is because I agree they've got a lot of unbelievable talent, but obviously they haven't, you know, got a new striker in. They also haven't got a new holding midfielder in. And I think that's equally as big of a mistake. And I don't think anyone's really talking about it enough. Um, so a, a failure to replace Sergio Guerrero and Fernandinho. And then I would also say someone like David Silva, because I think that he was so consistently creative and so much is is often asked of Kevin De Bruyne that I think they're really going to struggle there as well. I think that the the young players that they've tried to cultivate to take over, players like Rodri, players like Bernardo Silva, I don't really think they're they're hitting the heights that were expected of them. I mean, I think um a few years ago Pep Guardiola was saying that Bernardo Silva was the most talented player he'd ever managed or something ridiculous like that. And mm. you know, he's a good player, but he's clearly not that guy. Um, and I just think that it's a baffling transfer window from them to to spend a hundred million on another winger just confuses the hell out of me. And you know, I think it it's an unjust world in which uh, Marcelo Bielsa is called El Loco and not Pep Guardiola. So, in my opinion, Pep's Man City have peaked, and I think that they're going to struggle to maintain you know the heights that they've they've hit in the past. 
Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I do think, I mean, we've just seen them score 10 goals in two games. I think we'll see a lot of that over the course of the season. But I also think we'll see a lot of what they did in their third game, which is losing games to teams like Spurs. Um, and the occasional Leeds might, might, might do it again. Um, so if you've gone for, for Man sure. City third, then, who have you gone for in second place? I've put Liverpool in second place. Um, I think that, obviously, they, they've had key players come back, like Virgil van Dijk. Um, they've signed a new great centre-back in Kunate. And I think that this year we will see them regain, regain, recapture a little bit of the form that we saw um, in, you know, 2019 that that got them to uh, the Premier League title and the Champions League. So uh, I think that they are going to push Chelsea the closest, but I think Chelsea will still beat them for the title. Interesting. Well, moving on to my third place team, it's actually not Liverpool. I have gone for Manchester United. Um, I think that a lot of Manchester United fans certainly will be expecting them to try and win the league with the addition of Cristiano Ronaldo, um, since he is one of the best players you know in the world and, and one of the best players ever. Um, and I think they have had, in a lot of ways, an exceptional summer, signing players like, obviously, Ronaldo, but also Jadon Sancho and Rafael Varane. Really, really, really good additions to the squad. But still missing that quality defensive midfielder. Um, and I think without that, it's going to be really difficult for them to reach their full potential as a side. Someone like Camavinga going to Real Madrid for 30 million would have been the perfect signing to cap off their window. Or um, who's the other, the, the other lad, Aurelien, who Pogba was talking about today, the other French fielder who plays really well with Pogba um, for France. And yeah, just it, it's, it surprised me that that's a position they didn't pick up on. Um, yeah, see, I, I don't know. I... I would say, you know, personally, I'd rather they tried to pick up someone like Alan from from Everton than someone well, like Cameron. That too, that that too would also be a great signing. I don't think there would be a bad defense if, if it's def- defensive midfielder that's proven that's better than the level that they currently have. I don't think that necessarily needs to be in a mould of super experienced or super young. I think either would work. I also think with the signs that they have, obviously Varane's come in and looked good already, and Sancho's started one game and played the odd few. But I have this. I really like Jaden Sancho as a player. I think he's really, really talented, and I spent the better part of the summer episodes bemoaning his lack of presence in the England eleven. There is a part of me that suspects it will take a run of games for Sancho to hit his stride in the Premier League, as it does for, for many players when they come into the Premier League. And my concern there is that I fear that run for him will be interrupted by the likes of Anthony Martial and Marcus Rashford sort of being shuffled in. Not so much Mason Greenwood, because I think he's shown that he deserves to be in their first eleven, but I, I can just see sort of Sancho taking a long time to get those sort of five consecutive starts or six consecutive starts that he really needs to sort of start to get his his, his mark on the games because if he sort of needs those five games to get up to speed and he's not playing at the top of his game for one, two, three games, I could see him being dropped for, for one of those players who's waiting in the wings instead of getting that run. Um, what I do think is interesting about Man United though, and I think could be a huge factor in them finishing as high as I've put them in third, is the combination of fans back in the stadium for the first time in a long time plus Ronaldo back at United, that could be a really potent combination in returning Old Trafford to sort of the fortress status that it held for so, so long in this league. Because it really has, that, that sort of started to slip six, seven years ago. Even sort of post-Ferguson, it still had it a little bit, but it started to slip out six, seven years ago. Teams really do go to Old Trafford now and go, we could get a result here. And that just was not a thing for a long time growing up. And with that combination, maybe they could sort of start to reclaim a little bit of that sort of myth and sort of mystery and sort of the, the sort of, you know, the unqualifiable quality that is sort of makes a stadium a really difficult place to come to. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I've put Manchester United fourth, but I do think that this, these top four are a little interchangeable. Maybe, maybe you know, second, third and fourth are a little bit interchangeable. And I could see Manchester United having a really good season. I've put them fourth and not third or second, just because, firstly, I'm still not 100% convinced with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I also just feel like their squad isn't balanced. You kind of said there that they're lacking a good mm. holding oh, midfielder. No, I also think that they're lacking, you know, good depth at centre-back. Um, I think that I just... I just feel like they are going to come up short this year and yeah I don't I don't back Solskjaer to to be able to find a good balance for a squad which which doesn't have it. Yeah, maybe. And, and the whole, this is the interesting thing about them signing Ronaldo is that in, in a way it's kind of like, well, you make the squad work with him, but the, there was something about the front line that United had going there that it did seem to be working quite a nice way. And is this news disruption thing sort of going to halt the way things have, it, it's hard to, 
imagine a world where adding Ronaldo to a front line doesn't make it better, but maybe it's going to be a situation where, you know, there's a lot of three threes in their future or something. Um, it's just tricky because obviously, you know, as you say, like bringing Ronaldo in can never be a bad decision, especially with the history that he's got um, at Manchester United. But I just feel so bad for players like Mason Greenwood, who, you know, had established himself as a worthy candidate to, to lead the line. And then suddenly he's out of the fold again. I, I don't know if there's still space anymore for someone like Pogba to play, um, you know, higher and wider. As he's demonstrated already this season, he plays a lot better. Um, mm. And yeah, I just, I'm not really sure what Manchester United is going to look like this season. So I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that is the irony, isn't it? Because they looked so good in that first game against Leeds where they had Pogba on the left and there's no chance he plays there in their, in their best team now because you've got Sancho and Greenwood and then beyond that, Martial and Rashford and all those players to compete with because Ronaldo's going to be taking that, that you know, up top spot. So yeah, it, it's it's going to reshuffle things, but I think Ronaldo is a player worth reshuffling for. And I do think that, that what, what he's going to bring to the team is not just the, you know, goals, obviously, and then the assists and all that, but just like that, that oomph to the stadium crowd that can be so so valuable um, the, uh, the va-va-voom yeah absolutely um but then you know it was it was weird seeing them go from that massive game to start with and then suddenly drawing 1-1 with Southampton um so yeah it's that kind of that lack of consistency that lack of uh, a cohesive plan b that I just don't don't see them there's a question mark over them for you who's um, your fourth place well, we have the same top four, but we've gone in slightly different orders. My fourth place team is Liverpool. And I think that Liverpool have maybe slightly done themselves a disservice with a relatively quiet window. Um, they have only signed uh, Ibrahima Kanate as like a proper first team player. They've sort of had a few dribs and drabs there, but someone who's expected to sort of play in the first team, it's really only him. And I think that Liverpool of all teams are insane to have done this. They've just come off the back of a season where they've been absolutely ravaged by injury. And to only sort of really bring him in seems like an absolute madness, particularly when you consider that the African Cup of Nations is coming up this January. And that will mean that Liverpool will be without both Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane for a decent period of time. So the fact well, that they maybe. didn't sign... Well, 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 maybe, but assuming that goes ahead, it will probably mean they're without those two, especially when you consider they've also let players like Zerdan Shakiri go who's going to play up front for them during that period? It's probably going to be a front three of, depending on Firmino's injury and how long it goes, but their front three could end up being Diogo Yota, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, and Takumi Minamino, which is like, Yota's a good player, and Oxlade-Chamberlain and Minamino are fine, but that's like, that's like a mid-table front three. <laughs> that's that's not going to be good enough relative to their rivals. And even if that's just for a few weeks or, or, or a month or something, those are valuable can points that you can drop. Especially yeah, during that, yeah, it's a great, that it's a good point. schedule. Um, it's a good point for sure. I, I think they've also just, they're expecting so many young players to step up to roles that are just, it's insane to me that, you know, obviously Andy Robertson was only injured for, what was it, two games, but they've started off the season and they've had another key player injured and he's sort of, for a while, until the sort of scans went through, you didn't know how long it was going to be. There were sort of all these sort of like horror stories that it might be three months and Liverpool looked at that and went, yeah, this doesn't remind me of anything. Let's not sign any more players. And I was just like, that's insane. I think they're putting loads and loads of responsibility on players like Harvey Elliott's shoulders. Jeannie Wijnaldum has departed and they're expecting Harvey Elliott to sort of take up that entire role, it seems like. And I think Harvey Elliott's a really, really good player. I really, really rate him. I've actually been watching him you know, since he was about 15 years old playing for Fulham down at Mossberg Park. And I think he's absolutely top quality. But much as we discussed last season with someone like a, you know, Smith Rowe or a, or a Saka or even before that with someone like a Mount... It, it's not always some players can do it, but it's a huge, huge gamble to assume that someone that age can step up to a first team role and fill it entirely. You've got to have a backup plan at least in place in case they don't, and they haven't. Yeah, you're right. I think um, I would say early doors. It seems like, as you say, Harvey Elliott is you know filling the boots. I mean, not you know not filling the boots in terms of you know being a direct replacement, but doing enough to show that it wasn't necessarily the worst decision in the world, and also obviously. So Kostas Simakas um, has looked good, but I agree with you. There's definitely a lot of um, a lot of burden placed on players that haven't necessarily proven their mettle over you know uh, several leagues combined. So it, there's def- the, the, the definitely thing with young players. 
But this is exactly the thing with young, talented players, is that they will often do this. They'll often play really, really well at the start and then sort of really rapidly tire out. Because when you're younger, especially when you're as young as someone at Harvey Elliott, you're not like 21, but you're sort of in the teens still, you have been playing sort of shorter seasons at the youth level. Or if you're good enough to have been playing for the senior level, you've been playing the odd cup game and maybe the odd Premier League game, but you've not been playing full seasons. So oftentimes what you see with these players is they'll get like 14 games into the season and look really, really good. I mean, it's what happened to... um, uh, Tammy Abraham that season that Chelsea sort of went full youth he was absolutely on fire for the start of the season and then the back end of the season it all started to dry up because he'd just not had to do that at the top he'd done it obviously on loan at championship clubs, but he'd not done it at the top 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 level and I can see the exact same thing happening to Harvey Elliott it, he might crack on and continue to do it like we've seen someone like Pedri do but it's a real it's a real coin flip so often you can see with these players they start off fantastically they've got loads of gas in the tank and then it's all of a sudden oh actually the demands of the senior game at the top level are actually quite a lot more than I'm used to I'm gonna wilt away now you're right well time will tell as they say um, but those are our top fours little difference which is nice I'm glad that we're not entirely on the same page um, and let's move on to number five. Who have you got in fifth spot? Fifth place, I have gone for Tottenham Hotspur. And this is not where I thought I'd be putting them uh, this time about a month ago when I, you know, all the news was Harry Kane was going to leave and things were in disarray. And, you know, all the players were apparently, you know, really unhappy with the fact that he hadn't turned up to training and everything seemed to be on fire down, the, you know, White Hart Lane. So, uh, or Hotspur Way, even because they've now moved to the, the Tottenham Stadium or whatever it's called. Um, but yeah, everything sort of seemed to be going on. But then they've played these first three games and they look really, really well organised. Um, and it's one of those where the reason I put them fifth and not higher and not lower is because they look really organised. I don't see them dropping a lot of silly points. I can't see them doing in what is often the classic Spurs way, sort of losing those those games that they have no right to lose. But I also just don't, when you look at their, their team firstly and also their squad, I just don't see enough quality to convince me that they could finish higher than any of the teams I've already mentioned. Um, there are some players, it's always good to see someone like uh, Yafa Tenganga come through, but for much the same reasons that we just talked about with Harvey Elliott. I know they've signed Emerson Royale, but many Barcelona fans are saying, like, that's a complete scam that they've managed to get 30 million euros for him. <laughs> um, and, and, and similarly with someone like Oliver Skip, who seems to be favoured in that midfield role. Again, always exciting to see a young player come in and so far look decent but do they have the gas in the tank to take it the whole way history would say 50 50 so maybe one of them will maybe one of them don't um and the other thing about it is that you know all three of their games so far have been one nils and there's a part of me that absolutely adores that because my favorite score in football is one nil i absolutely love a shithouse one nil um, okay jose <laughs> And, 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 and it is a really impressive, if you can play several games for 1-0, it, it speaks to your ability to shut games down and it speaks to your ability to control games and stay calm and keep a level head. But what it doesn't take into account is just the inherent chaos in the sport that is football. Every now and again, there's going to be a freak deflection, a wild shot from range that bends in, a poor referee decision that gives the other team a penalty. So if your game plan is playing 1-0, it's not, it's not a consistent thing. You should go for 2-0, the safest score in football. The safest score in football. Um, yeah, look, I've I've got Tottenham in fifth place as well. I agree with you. They've looked great. They're the only team to have won all three of their opening games. Um, the other five teams have all drawn one. Um, and yeah, I think that the way that I see it is like, I think Nuno, Miss Proto Santos, is, um, I think he's exactly the manager that Tottenham wanted when they hired Jose Mourinho. Um, yeah, and, yeah exactly. and those three one nils uh, speak volumes for it. And what I would say is that I feel like yes, obviously you're right in that one nil is not a particularly safe scoreline. But to be able to get three wins out of three in what will surely be, and I'm touching on this point, but what will surely be the most tumultuous period of the season, which is you know the manager's gone, they've got someone new in, their their star player and captain is has gone AWOL um, in theory away, yeah. at least. I just think to be able to come out of that with nine points is unbelievably impressive. And I don't think they're going to get above fifth. I agree with you that I think they're going to be the best of the rest rather than, you know, challenging for the top four. Mm. But they've shown enough so far, I think, that they're going to have a good season. Yeah, I think so. And, I, you know, again... We were just talking about Liverpool, who I've got in fourth. If the AFCON really strips Liverpool down, I could see Spurs sneaking into the top four. Um, it wouldn't be that surprising to me. Um, but yeah, for, for now, I've put them in fifth. Because um, I think, yeah, they're, they're, they're not quite at the level of quality as, as the teams above them. 
Moving into useless trivia, um, I have got one for you this week, and that is, um, you know, we, we, we like the ones that have to do with sort of names, and, uh, you know, this club is the only club that has this this letter in their name, or doesn't have that, or this player is the only player to have Scouser rearranged. Um, this one is uh, a Premier League stalwart, a, a Premier League legend, you might even say, Nemanja Vidic. Um, and he's a Premier League legend, many will say, for captaining one of the most successful Man United sides in history. Not I. I say he's a Premier League legend because he is the only Premier League player with a surname made entirely of Roman numerals. V for those, <laughs> V is 5, I is 1, D is 500, and C is 100. Wow. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> um, that is a pretty cool statistic. Well done. Gives him a value of 607. <laughs> A cool fact. Does that does that relate to anything in his life? I I, I did try and do some looking, but no. <laughs> Sadly not. Um, that is a, a pretty fun statistic fact. Um, I have one for you, which um, blew my mind. I think um, it's kind of piggybacking on on one which is quite a famous statistic, which is that um, you know uh, Philip Lahm never received a red card as a professional footballer which is crazy for someone who played over 750 times in his career. Um, but did you know that for, for over a year, between September 2014 and October 2015, he didn't commit a single foul? That's unbelievable. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> that's 13 months in the Bundesliga. As a defender, not committing a foul. As as a key defender and like the defensive linchpin of of the side. Jesus Christ! Well, the discipline on that guy. Do you think it maybe got to the point where like the German referees like respected him so much and like respected the record so much they were just like he couldn't he could do no wrong. I mean, to be fair, uh, that is how things go, isn't it? I wasn't religiously watching uh, Bayern Munich at the time. Every week in the Bundesliga, maybe he was just chopping players clean in half, and they were like, <laughs> "I just be like, come on, ref, come on." And the ref's like, "Well, it is Philip Lahm." <laughs> Does Philip Lam have any connections to organised crime, perchance? <laughs> well, if, if statistics are anything to go by, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, sixth place, who have you gone for? Sixth place, I've got Leicester. Um, and that might be the same as you. Um, I just think that they, as, just solid as a rock these days, they always seem to defy expectations through bringing new players in, um, blooding younger players. Um, I think that... They, I don't see much rocking their boat this year. Um, I, the only thing I could see is maybe, you know, a potential decline of Jamie Vardy over the course of the season. But again, he just doesn't really look like he's slowing down all that quickly. So um, I, I think it's going to be another solid year. If, you know, un, unthrilling, by which I mean they're not going to be challenging for anything above fourth place. I have gone for a slightly different team, and I'm I'm pretty sure this will not be a team that you're going to have in seventh. In fact, I'm hoping that this team is going to be uh, quite a bit further down your table, not least because you predicted that they would finish below Brentford this season. Uh, it was your hot take a few weeks ago. Uh, so I'm <laughs> hoping you're going to stick to that in, in this, this uh, table position. I've gone for West Ham United for sixth place. Um, just because I'm loving their football so far, um, I think they put together some really good moves. I think, obviously, Antonio is playing the football of his life and has sort of clearly already got golden boot ambitions I think a lot of this does hinge on the ability for Antonio to stay fit not least because you know at the best of times you want a player like that to stay fit but for West Ham specifically they don't really have a backup striker so if Antonio is unfit I, I don't know what they're going to do are they going to I think they're going to play Jared Bowen as like a makeshift number nine which is you know, a, a bit of an experiment that I, I I don't see reaping the same rewards that Antonio has been has been so far. Um, but outside of not signing a striker, which I do think is a huge miss for them, I think they've had a really really effective window. Big signings like Kurt Zuma and Nikola Vlasic are great permanent additions to the squad. Kurt Zuma is obviously you know someone who has his hot spots and his weak spots, but he reminds me a lot of the signing they made last season in Jesse Lingard, of someone who I really could see finding his feet and his consistency and showing his best self at West Ham. Um, and Nikola Vlasic is a really, really exciting creative midfielder. Very young, great player to have as a permanent addition. And the loan moves that they've made as well, Alex Crowell and Alphonse Areola, are really, really smart loans because they've also included the option to buy, which is something we're interestingly seeing more and more in the Prem. It was never that, it wasn't really that much of a thing in the Prem back in the day. Um, it was kind of like loan or buy or like loan and then discuss it. But the option to buy is becoming more and more of a thing, um, which is, you know, good when you're getting someone like Alphonse Areola because for me, 
he could end up looking like one of the signings of the seasons if they do sort of loan and then buy him. He was extremely impressive for Fulham last season, and he's only 28, which is like 23 in goalkeeper years. Um, so if they, you know, if he has a great season there and they sign him, he could be a key player for them for years and years and years to come. And I couldn't find the exact fee that they've got their, their option to buy, but that just seems like such a smart deal to me. And I remember reading the story when he did sign with them on loan, and I was like, how have more clubs not been in for him there? That seems like a massive coup by West Ham that so many yeah, teams, I think so many teams would be would have him as an upgrade even someone like for example I don't know Manchester United to get him in as a second keeper if they're looking to offload you know apparently they don't see Dean Henderson having a future there or someone like Arsenal having him as a, a backup and then taking over from Leno ahead of you know getting Aaron Ramsdale just seemed like such a good player that I was surprised you know not to not, nothing against West Ham but wasn't snapped up by one of the quote-unquote bigger clubs yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, um, as you say, Ariella was was immense for Fulham last year. So uh, a real, a real great find from West Ham. Um, I've actually put West Ham seventh. Um, I, uh, I haven't put them above uh, Bortler. I haven't put Brentford above uh, West Ham in in this table. It was a hot take, and not necessarily something that I think is is dead set Stop to man. happen. Um, it was a hot I take, think a hot obviously. Flash. Exactly, yeah. We, we we might we might turn out to have been a bit short sighted, as you say, because they are without a good backup for Michel Antonio. But what West Ham do have going for them is that you know goals can come from a lot of different places in the squad. Um, they've got Jared Bowen who gets goals, Pablo Fornal, um, their Benarama gets goals, uh, Thomas Suchek from midfield gets goals, and they've got you know great creativity from deep through players like. Um, Declan Rice and Cresswell and Kufal. So yeah, I, I think that they have a really solid squad. It feels like they're building something, as you say. Like they're kind of bringing in players like Zuma, which I think is a really, really good signing. I think he is very much like upper echelons of Premier League standard. Um, so yeah, I, I back them, and I think they'll have a good year. And really, really one that splits opinion, Zuma, because he has had you know good good spots and bad spots. One of one of my mates is a. Um, one of your mates as well, you know, you know, as a Stoke fan, and he always says of Kurt Zuma, just awful in his time there. Um, whereas, you know, you speak to most Chelsea fans and they go, like, oh, I can't believe you sold him, he's such a good player. Um, but it's about which which one of him West Ham managed to, to find, and based on how most of their players have been looking in this current regime, you would bet on the latter. Yeah, I can really see Kurt Zuma discovering his best form at West Ham. It just feels it feels right as a signing. Um, and obviously he hasn't quite managed to live up to the, the expectations that were, were placed on his shoulders at Chelsea. Um, he didn't have a great time at Stoke. You can't really deny that. But also Stoke was falling apart that year. Um, and, you know, you can't blame someone as easily for not saving the club as for just, you know, performing badly over 90 minutes fairly regularly uh, when everyone else around them is also playing badly. Um, yeah, I, I think I think he's a good player and a good signing. Looking at seventh place, uh, so I have swapped around again. We're still not that... We've got a few little differences, but I've gone for Leicester City there. And I, I do always feel... I can't remember where I put Leicester last season. I think I put them again like seventh or eighth. And when I was writing my predictions, I, I do always feel when we do these things, I, I come to Leicester and I feel like I've put them too low down the table. Like I've undersold them and I'm sort of like getting it wrong again. But I also do feel quite strongly that every team mentioned so far does look stronger than them. Um, I also think some of the decisions they've made have been a little bit all over the place. I found it weird that Iheanacho, who was one of their best players in the back end of last season, doesn't seem to be getting in the eleven because he also scored that penalty for them in the community shield, albeit after coming on as a sub. But I, I don't know what he's done to be dropped necessarily. And they sort of found a way to make him and Vardy work together last season and now seem to have reverted it to a system that favours playing you know, Harvey Barnes, who was newly fit, who wasn't fit at the end of last season, and Eusey Perez, who is, as ever, a firebrand and got himself a red card two games in. It just seems weird that, and I like Harvey Barnes, but when Harvey Barnes was injured and they sort of had to move to that system with Hianato and Vardy, Hianato had an absolutely crazy purple patch, and it seems weird to me that just on the basis of Harvey Barnes coming back, he's been taken out entirely. There's not a system where they could both play or that he and actually keeps his spot based on the you know performances. It seems weird to me. Um, and then you look at the players they've brought in who are really exciting. I think I've talked about this before, but two of the players I'm most excited about seeing in the league this season are Pat Sandaka and Vibakari Sumare. Um, but they're very much getting eased in. I think there is, for not a bad reason, a, a 
comfort in Leicester's setup. So, you know, having that sort of Madison, Tielemans and Ndidi trio and having Harvey Barnes on the left side and, and sort of not wanting to disrupt that too much. And I get that partly, but also, you know, you've signed these really exciting players. Get them in there. Firstly, because I want to see them. And secondly, because I think the reason I want to see them is because I think they're really, really good players. Um, the reason I put them a little bit lower is just because we just mentioned that that red card of Fiozzi Perez. But in that game, they got absolutely hammered by West Ham. And that is partly due to the man advantage. So I don't want to completely condemn them based on that. But they just weren't able to really respond to it. And I think for They fell apart a little bit, was, didn't they? 4-1, they, they were lucky to get out like that. As I mentioned, I think Antonio could have scored like six goals that game. And I think we could have been looking at that and sort of some sort of like 8-2 or something and just been going, wow, things are really in pieces there. So luckily that on the day, Antonio wasn't scoring every single chance he got or it could have been could have been absolutely savage. I, I do think Leicester will still have a good season, but it's just a question of other teams around them doing better for me. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, obviously it's a bit of a red flag that they uh, they fell apart in the way they did. Um, but as you say, they've got so many good options um, that, to complement their midfield and their attack. And they've got so many different, exciting combinations to, to try out. So yeah, I think they've got a lot about them. And 6th, 7th, maybe 8th if they struggle is, is about right for them. Looking at 8th place, uh, I have gone for the team that will be finishing 8th, based on my previous, and that is Leeds United. Um, I have been slightly confused by their window in, in some ways. Some signings have made sense, but they've only made a handful, and the Daniel James signing really took me by surprise. Um, both the cost, firstly, I thought £30 million, I think it was, or, or rising to £30 million of all the conditions about was a, a very large amount for a player that hasn't done a huge amount right at Manchester United. I, I, I you know, don't have anything against him, but I've never watched him and gone, oh, there's a player there. He just seems kind of like a Theo Walcott regen, loads and loads of pace, but not not lots lots else. And it's particularly you know surprising to see him going to a Bielsa side because Leeds' players have been sort of typically defined by their ability to sort of do a bit of everything. Sort of you know even if you're a striker, you can tackle well and press well, and even if you're a sort of midfielder, you can you know surge forward into the box or you can sit back. That's why we see sort of players like Rodrigo, who's been a striker his entire career, playing as a midfielder, or Stuart Dallas playing in every position on the pitch. Um, and so to sign someone like Dan James, who very much is in the vein of a one-trick pony winger, in, in my opinion anyway, it just seems like a very weird signing. Um, aside from that, the only permanent signings have been a backup keeper, making Jack Harrison, who was on loan last season, full-time by signing him, and picking up Barcelona's junior Firpo at left-back to replace uh, Alioski, which is a you know it's, it's an improvement there. But overall, it's not a massively different eleven to the one we saw last season. Um, having said that, I do see in Leeds a lot of individual players that could be set to kick on really well this season. Rafinha is one that's already been really influential in a number of games this season and just short of having exceptional games with a few missed chances. I think against United, he could have had like a really good brace, but just fluffed his lines. Um, Patrick Bamford is another one who, you know, he's 28. He's getting into the period of his life where he's, you know, hitting his prime. 17 league goals last season, loads of confidence coming into it. And he's with a team that sort of is more confident than him. And Ilan Melier, for me, remains one of the most quietly exciting keepers in Europe. I think he is such an exciting talent that is super, super young and is going to continue to get better. Yeah, I agree with you. It's funny, isn't it, looking at Leeds' transfer history because it, it it seems like, you know, from the from the prices of like 5 to 20 million, they make really savvy, astute signings. Um, and then 20 plus, it's like Dan James, Rodrigo. It almost feels like someone's hitting a panic button somewhere and saying like, we need a big signing. Um, and then kind of like scouring the market for, for someone that they might be able to pick up. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a little bit of a weird one. I'm not sure it's massively, you know, improved them in a way that you would hope that, you know, the second most expensive signing of all of their entire history of the club would do. Um, so I, I'm with you on that one. Um, I, I haven't put them anytime yet then then they're going to come down a little later in in my table but um i think they're going to have a solid season but i don't think who are you going for did they finish ninth last year leeds uh they did indeed yeah yeah okay i've got them finishing a little lower than that um eighth i've actually put everton um i i kind of think they turn around a little bit of of what was ex- was it kind of expected of them at the beginning of the season before any games were played? It seemed like the momentum was all off, and then suddenly it turns out Dominic Calvert-Lewin's actually a really good player. Um, and and you know, uh, 
uh, they have a lot of good players and they can produce results. And I think that I think they actually might have a surprisingly stable year. They're not going to knock anyone's socks off with like incredible, incredible displays every single week. But I think that they will be a really solid, you know, above tenth place side. Interesting. Um, I, much like with Leeds, have got Everton a little bit lower down. Um, but let's look at ninth place. Who have you got there? I put Arsenal, and it it almost feels like I had to put Arsenal somewhere, so I put them ninth. Um, you were getting lower and lower down, and you were like, oh god, oh, they're, still, they're still a quote-unquote big team, and I still haven't put them in yet. Uh, I've also gone for Arsenal at ninth, for what it's worth, yeah. Yeah, it's a weird one, because you know, in some ways I could see them finishing you know, 10th, 11th, or 12th, um, but at the same time, I feel like it's maybe a little bit naive to to put them that far down because obviously they do have a lot of good players. Um, and if some of these top players hit good like strides of form at the same time, Aubameyang, Lacazette, Thomas Partey, and someone like Bukayo Saka as well, they, they can be a real electric side. Um, so I think I think that unlike Everton, who I think are going to have a fairly consistent season I think for Arsenal it's going to be very lopsided I think they're going to go through periods where they really struggle like now and they're going to go through periods where they look great and everything's everything's like firing on all cylinders yeah I think the reason Arsenal are a little bit hard to put a finger on is because it's exactly that it's like you look at some teams and you go well they haven't really got the players but Arsenal you know things really are grim at the moment but for the moment because it's one thing when you look at you know performances from like a David Luiz or a Sad Kalasnach you know doing badly and you sort of go well they're not very good players are they but at the moment even Arsenal's top performers you know Aubameyang has just not looked good for ages even Kieran Tierney who last season was their most consistent player by miles has not been great this season and wasn't amazing for Scotland in the international break either I was watching him there just sort of looking a bit lost of confidence and and, and all that stuff the reason that I would say it's hard to sort of look at that is because you know, these players being bad seems more of an anomaly than everyone just sort of disappearing. And I think that Arsenal's league position will massively fluctuate depending on the manager movements. The current rumour going about is that in October, if things are still going poorly, Arsenal have a, a bit of an easier run going into uh, September and October. Then they're obviously playing Chelsea and Manchester City as, as hard a double-ender as you as you could want. Um, but uh, uh, over September and October, they've got a quote-unquote easier fix to run. Um, and apparently, if they don't sort of turn things around in that period, uh, agreement has already been reached with Antonio Conte, um, who obviously, you know, has good experience in the Premier League. He also, I think, could really pull the best out of this squad because Arsenal have sort of been building towards this back three. You look at the players they signed this window from Ben White to Takahiro Tomiyasu, who's sort of the right back who's supposed to sort of like play off Kieran Tierney when he surges up to sort of tuck in and make the back three. So it seems like a system that would be perfect for Conte to come into and take over. Of course, it could be complete bollocks that he's been contacted and hadn't an agreement reached. But yeah, I think... It's kind of like when we talked about Chelsea this in this episode last season, and we talked about how, you know, I think Chelsea's season will be defined about how early they sack Frank Lampard, and that is kind of how it was defined. In much the same way here, I think if Arsenal hang on and hang on and hang on to Mikel Arteta, who, for my money, is just taking them down a dark, you know, an alleyway with, with no ending... Um, the worst things are going to get to the point where even if a manager comes in, it might be too late to fix things. Whereas if in the next month or so... That he gets sacked as someone like a Conte or a Lucien Favre or a Ralph Rangnick comes in. I think there are the players there, like your Aubameyangs, like your you know Kieranteinis, even someone like a Pepe that could be turned into much better performances. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I think it's going to be I, weirdly they're probably going to be one of the more interesting sides to to watch this year because they are a little bit of a of an unknown. Um, and I agree with you as well that Conte could really get the best out of the squad. I mean. I, I really like the idea of having, um, you know, Bakayo Saka as well, potentially turning into a really good wing back. Even someone like Ainsley Maitland-Niles could could be a really exciting wing back on the other side as well. So yeah, I think team, yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's 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 a weird one as well because like it's kind of an exciting time to be an Arsenal fan, but it's also very much not an exciting time to be an Arsenal fan. I imagine it's exciting if you subscribe to the belief that Conte might come in or there's someone else to come in. If if you think that the club is going to stick with Arteta... Well, I, I say that, but weirdly, there are a lot of Arsenal fans who still, based on I have no idea what, believe in the Arteta process, um, which, you know, good good luck to you. But uh, I think you're taking believe the a dream that... 
that will never come true. But um, but yeah, it's an interesting one, I think, for everyone. They'll be an interesting team to watch both in the season and then after the season when the Amazon documentary comes out. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. Uh, moving into number 10, and here I put Leeds, um, who you had at 8th. Um, I think that they'll, they'll struggle a little bit more this season for two reasons. One, because the second season is often harder because, you know, you've played every team twice or at least, you know, 18, 17 of the teams twice. And people have kind of started to understand you a little better. And secondly, just because I don't think they've really strengthened at all. I don't think they've added new strings to their bow in, a, in an exciting way. Um, I, I could be proved wrong with Daniel James. We could both be proved wrong with Daniel James. But um, I think that they will finish lower than they did this year I just don't feel like they've they've kept up any sort of momentum that they had running into um you know the, the transfer window and they have lost that surprise factor you, you are absolutely right about that for me it's just the fact they have so many younger players not not all young but even someone like Bamford is 28 I, I could just see him being better this season um and he's had a good start to the season and he's just going to be in there with confidence now yeah you're right I guess just you know one loss and and two draws to start the season has not exactly uh, sparked joy. Um, one was against Burnley, um, and you know, obviously, letting five in against Man U, it does not, you know, uh, ring true of, of uh, a defensively solid team. Um, so, yeah, I think tenth. Interesting. Well, for tenth, I have gone for Aston Villa. Um, I think that, it, funnily enough, you were talking about Leeds. I think that in a lot of ways, they are the opposite to Leeds in terms of transfers. This Villa side already looks wildly different to the one from last season. Um, Emmy Buendia and Danny Ings have come straight in and showed their worth and just been off the mark really, really good. Ashley Young hilariously also has come in and sort of looked good out of nowhere in a twist that no one foresaw. Um, and Leon Bailey um, hasn't played yet. He's still injured. He's got a hamstring thing. But when he comes in the coming weeks, um, you'd have to imagine he's going to add another dimension to the attack as well. Um, I think losing Grealish will be a you know an impactful thing for them. But I do also think they've replaced him really, really well with these three players. And I, it's not a hard decision they finished last season. But I, I do like the sort of they keep moving on and they keep sort of building and building and building. You can sell your player and sort of lament about it or you can sell your player Gareth Bale, Bale style and sort of buy players that aren't effective. It looks, at least on the surface level and on the first few games, at least from Buendia and Ings, that the players they've bought to replace Jack Grish were well considered and fit in the system really well. Well, there you go. And yeah, you could well be right. Um, well, um, that is your 10th place. We've both done the top 10 of the table for this year, predictions-wise. We'll be saving the next 10 for a future episode because otherwise we may well run out of time. Um, but let's wrap up with a little bit of a an old favourite guessing game. Yeah, an old favourite indeed. And you've got one for me this week. And I have, I, I'm looking around. I have not got a pen and paper, so I'll have to commit this to memory. Um, please, <laughs> Do, please, 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 between 2003 and 2011, he held the record for the most combined transfer fees of any player in the game. Okay, I had already some sort of coming up and making me think. Um, despite hailing from South America, he was nicknamed El Polaco because his grandmother was Polish. Okay, so it's not the player I thought it was. And he played during his career with the likes of Mario Balotelli, Cafu, Claude Makalele, and Javier Zanetti. So can you say, say that again? All of them or just the players? Just the, just the players. Mario Balotelli, Cafu, okay. Claude Makalele, and Javier Zanetti. Hmm. Okay. I'm trying to think who that would be. South American but Polish ancestry. My my initial thought when you said the um the cumulative transfer thing was I was like, ah, oh, it's gonna be um Nicholas Anelka, probably. Um 
But Weirdly, Nicholas Noga had a lot of free transfers. Yeah, but he had I so mean, many he, transfers full stop. He did He did command. I think Nicholas Nelka during that period was a very tight second for quite a few years. Um, hmm. Hmm. I'm not, I'm not actually sure off the top of my head. How about I'll, I'll give up on this first guessing game back because I'm rusty and I haven't got my notepad. Who, who, who is this player? Um, well, Cameron, this player is none other than Hernan Crespo. Hernan Crespo had Polish ancestry? Good lord, I, I didn't know. So he did, so he did. Well, I, I mean, it was a bit of a red herring because who's going to know that a player's grandma's Polish? But I thought, throw the nickname in there and I'll also give Apparently you a little nugget that he's from South America. Um, but yeah, there you go. Um, he had he has played with some incredible players. Um, yeah, of course, because Ch- Chelsea and Inter and, and yeah, Nedved, and- Diego Simeone, Nesta, Inzaghi, Veron, Yapstam, Rui Costa, Pirlo, Patrick Vieira, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. There were there was a whole host of players that I could have picked from uh, for that portion, but I thought I would oh, try yeah. and uh, pick four players which you might be able to glean who he'd played for um, from them. Um, but yeah, no well, luck play- this week, Cameron. But um, great. Well, that about wraps us up for this episode. Rupert, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much, and thank you to everyone at home for listening. We will catch you next week. Cheers, guys. Bye. And stop. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.